You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ahmed Munawar, and I'm so excited today to share with you our very first hot seat interview. These interviews are going to be a little bit different from what you're used to hearing on the show. We're going to be bringing on folks who are leading a professional services or a consulting business and are looking for advice to help break through and get to the next level. Today, we're talking to Mary Ann Samady, who is Managing Director of Amazing Appeal. Mary Ann is a learning and development professional who brings over 15 years of experience facilitating and implementing workplace learning programs in the corporate and nonprofit sectors. In this hot seat interview, Mary Ann and I talk about how to grow her flagship coaching program called Set to Lead, which helps professionals prepare themselves for leadership positions in their respective organizations. Mary Ann is a highly accomplished professional with a program that's getting great results for her clients, but she struggles with finding the right product market fit for her program, and that's what we tackle together in this episode. Show notes are at forecast.fm slash Ann. That's forecast.fm slash M-A-R-Y-A-N-N. Finally, if you'd like to join the ranks of Mary Ann and the many other courageous folks who are getting on the hot seat to solve their biggest marketing challenges, just shoot me an email at ahmed at boutiquegrowth.com. That's A-H-M-A-D at boutiquegrowth.com. Tell me a little bit about your business. Tell me what you're currently struggling with, and I'll let you know if you qualify to get on the hot seat. With that, here is Mary Ann. Marianne, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ahmad. It's my pleasure to be on the show. So why don't we kick things off by sharing some context around your business? Tell everybody kind of, you know, who you are, what you do, and and what your business is all about. Okay. Well, my name is Marianne Samdi, and I own a training, coaching, and consulting firm called Amazing Appeal. I have a signature program called Set to Lead. And the premise for that program is to help professionals who want to get promoted and who want to take that step into a management or supervisory role. Got it. So you're targeting professionals who, well, in terms of the audience for your program, at least, is professionals who are not in a management role? Typically, they're not in a management role, but they are considered a high performer or a high potential in the corporate world meaning that they've been tagged to, in the future, have more responsibilities in their roles. So they've been deemed as someone who could handle more responsibility in the future. Got it. So you're essentially bridging that gap where somebody goes from a technical role and they may be very good at what they do technically, whether it's finance, you know, engineering, accounting, whatever it may be. And you're essentially giving them the management skills or the leadership skills that they need to become a manager or a supervisor, somebody higher up in the organization. Correct. Correct. So I help them to actually get into the mindset or understand some of their rationale used by management to promote folks. And then once they are promoted, and hopefully maybe they're promoted into a role where they have direct reports, 
Then I help them with tips and tricks on how do you manage a team? How do you get more credibility in your role? How do you get folks to collaborate and want to work with you? Got it. And who's typically buying this? Is it the user? Is it somebody else in the organization that's sending the individual to the training? Like, Who's the decision maker here? Typically, the organization is the one that sponsors participants to engage in a training course or to engage with my coaches, typically. It's very rare at the moment with my current business model where employees will pay for themselves. Okay, got it. And tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work. What's your background and how did you get to this point? Well, you know, I've been in the HR field for 15 plus years now in the L&D space, learning and development and organizational development. So I've been working on, I've worked with creating curriculum, professional development training. I started my career as a technology trainer and then over the years got into more of a leadership trainer and coach role. So I've been doing professional development training and coaching for a while now, 15 plus years. Got it. And describe for us who has, what's the profile of the client that has enrolled in this program to date? To date, those that have participated in my set to lead leadership development and coaching program have typically been from the nonprofit space and they've been tagged as high potentials who um, are in line to get a management role in the nonprofit sector. Okay, so there's professionals in not-for-profit who they look to be upwardly mobile and somebody in the not-for-profit has decided that it's worth investing in this program to give them the skills that they need for a higher role. Who is that somebody in the not-for-profit that's made that decision? Typically in the nonprofit world, it's been the executive director. Okay. Now, do nonprofits typically have, I guess it depends on the size, but is it common to find a, an HR director or an HR manager? Typically, no. Typically, being that I also do uh, HR consulting, dealing with uh, performance management consulting and e-learning consulting, a lot of, there, are, there typically isn't an HR role in the nonprofit sector. So a lot of times my clients, the ED, will hire me to do some HR consulting work with them. I'm assuming the larger non-for-profits would have an HR department. Does it depend on size here? Maybe it does depend on size, but the nonprofit organizations that I've been working for don't actually have an HR department. Typically, they will actually outsource that piece. And what's the typical size of that organization from, let's say, a, you know, when it comes to HR, maybe a headcount perspective is most relevant? Well, typically the nonprofits that I've worked with, the headcount is 10 to 40 people that are actually uh, staff, uh, deemed as staff, staffers. Um, in addition, then they'll also have volunteers. Got it. And is your program something that's applicable for volunteers as well or just staff? Right now, it's staff, but I have been considering doing a course on volunteer management because a lot of the management hopefuls and managers that are in my class always say that they would love to be able to get a better handle on how to manage volunteers who aren't technically on the payroll. They find that if you're not on the payroll, it makes it a little bit difficult to influence someone in that capacity. 
Okay, got it. So you've got a program here, seems to be dialed in to a particular problem that's fairly specific. Uh, You validated it in that there are people buying this from the not-for-profit sector. In your estimation, what's the big marketing business development challenge here? You know, scaling. Scaling is an issue. Getting it to more people, jumping outside of the local area, and maybe going more national in order to scale it. And also the challenge has been, I think, nonprofit for me as a secondary market, being that there's some budget constraints at times, I'm not quite sure if the nonprofit should be my primary market. So how much have you tried to sell this into other non-for-profits? You know, I've done my best with getting referrals locally, but I haven't really done a lot of work in terms of spreading the word outside of the state or even nationally. Because I never thought, being that I never thought that nonprofits were my primary market, I never really thought, I'm not sure if it's worth putting a lot more effort into it to scale it, to scale this particular market. Got it. Okay. Let's peel those layers one at a time. So local and versus national and then industry. I mean, those are two different ways to scale and they're certainly not mutually exclusive. So starting with local, is there anything mm-hmm. about your program that lends itself to being local in terms of the delivery model, perhaps? Do you deliver on-site, online, things like that? I mean, yeah, the fact that I'm close by And if I wanted to be the primary instructor for a training class, that makes it very convenient. And being, I have a a decent local network, so that makes it easier. But that's about it for for locally. That's all I can think of in terms of locally, the fact that it's a little bit easier access for myself and my team to reach out to local people. And how is the program actually delivered? Is it delivered in person or online or how does that work? Right now, it's delivered both. It's delivered in person, and I would like to start delivering it online. I'm set up to deliver it virtually, but I haven't been able to really move the needle too far with the virtual module. Do you find that clients are just more receptive to in-house training than online training? It depends. So I have one client who's been delivering this set-to-lead program in-house, face-to-face. But next year, they've decided that they don't want to do in-house. They don't want to do face-to-face. They actually want to try the virtual model because they don't have, they want it to be a little bit more flexible for their participants to be engaged with the program on their own time, on demand. So they're actually going to leverage, my local client is going to leverage the virtual module in 2018. Interesting. Have you ever found clients who uh, were at least interested in the virtual model right off the bat without doing the in-person live model? Not yet. Yeah, because my hunch there is that that client has seen the value that you deliver in person in a live context. And then it's easier for them to say, well, let's let's try online now because there are benefits. But yeah, I think at this stage of your program, my I think the risk is that you're not at a stage yet where you can sell straight to the online. Like that might be an upsell or a phase two. But I think mm-hmm. it's it's just a harder sell, right? Especially for the kind of profile that you're targeting. These are smaller organizations. They everyone likes to have, you know, somebody come into their office and and talk to them and do it in person. And I think they feel like that kind of training, especially in training, is going to be more effective than an online model. And that's what the ED, the executive director 
that's what she's actually shared with me all along. Um, I've always pitched the online module to her, but she was never interested in that. She really wanted the face-to-face. And a lot of the participants have used some of my competitors. They've gone to some of uh, my competitors, and they've considered their classes to be very generic. And one of the things they liked about Amazing Appeal and the Signature Set to Lead program was they liked the fact that I was able to custom customize the content to their specific environment. So that's one of the pluses and the differentiators of using someone like me. So customize for what exactly? For the fact that they're not for profit or for other things as well? Customize that they're not for profit and also customizing to their particular challenges and their specific scenarios. So before we deliver training, we always try and work with management to figure out what are the specific challenges or scenarios that their managers go through. And we actually incorporate those scenarios in the classroom and work through them. Okay, so when you assemble a cohort for your training, is that cohort primarily made up of individuals from one organization? It's both. Sometimes I have clients where it's just their their employees, and I've also had cohorts where it was several nonprofits in one classroom together. What's been the easier sell there? I don't think either scenario is an easier sell. Some organizations like the fact that they have other peers within the same industry in the classroom, so they think there's more depth of learning in that type of scenario. And then there's other uh, clients that want to do it in-house for timing reasons. They don't want anyone to go off-site. There's one client that participated in the cohort with other nonprofits, and the following year they decided to step out of that scenario because they just didn't want, they thought it was, there was too much time that their employees were off-site for training, and they just rather do it in-house for a shorter period of time. And, and how big is a group usually? Typically, a group is between 12 to 15 people. So does it depend then on, like, if I've got one or two people that I want to put through the program, obviously, I'm going to enroll them in a group made up of other organizations. You know, if I'm one of the larger groups, of, you know, maybe more than 40 people in my organization, and I've got 10 to 12 that should go through the program that I might bring you in to do it for my entire team. Is that the distinction from a customer perspective? That's a good point. That's a good point. Because one organization I'm thinking of, they did have at least a dozen so people to put in the course themselves. Yeah. So then it makes sense. And I mean, it may even be more cost effective to bring you in and do training for all of their staff as opposed to sending them as individuals to your group training. Sure. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. So look, what I want to do is by the end of this call, I want to establish a direction for you. Right. I want, you know, we're not going to figure everything out on this conversation, unfortunately. (laughs) I wish we could. Right. But I want to at least give you a way forward that's clear, that's specific, and that gives you some concrete action steps you can take when we're done here. And, you know, I'm seeing a few different directions. So let's list out the possibilities and then we can kind of dive into each one and discuss their merits and, and pros and cons. So one option I think is you've got this local versus national and then this not for profit versus other industry those are kind of two decisions to make. And then there's the group coaching for a group of organizations or going in and doing custom training for one organization. So I'm seeing like three different decision models there, right? So one option is you go local, not-for-profit, okay? So that would mean you stick to your network right now. You stick to your geographic area, which is, I guess, the greater New York area. That's 
a good area to be. Certainly a lot of people, a lot of organizations, right? And you focus on not-for-profits because that's where the bulk of your success has been so far. That's where you've got, uh, you know, some product market fit and some validation. And you really double down on, on that success and you build that way. That's one way to go. And you acknowledge that it's, you know, it's easier to sell when you're local because you can go in, you can have meetings in person. They like that you're there. They like that you can come in and do the training yourself. And it just, it's a little bit of an easier, less friction, more frictionless sell rather, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other options, you go national, not-for-profit. So you still build out within the not-for-profit space, but you don't restrict yourself to the local area. It may be a harder sell because again, you're not there. These can be primarily phone-based conversations, unless it gets to like a really late stage, and then you might fly out for a final meeting. But primarily, your sales are going to be uh, on the phone. And when it comes to delivery, they're going to want to know, well, who's doing the delivery? If it's not you, or well, it could be you, you could fly in, and then there's costs associated with that travel and whatnot. Or it might be somebody local, and then they'll want to know who you have locally. And it just creates more questions, which are not insurmountable, but it just makes it a little bit more complicated. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's another way. So we got number one is local, not for profit. Number two is national, not for profit. And then number three would be local, any industry. Right. So if you want to break out a not for profit and you want to explore other industries, then, you know, either you come up with a short list of industries or you kind of cast a wide net and have a lot of conversations with folks in any industry who are in a particular role with this particular problem and you see who bites. Right. And Again, locally would be easier because you can leverage your network. It'll be easier to get conversations because you're there, because you're local. But the fourth option would be national, any industry, which may give you a broader sample size, but would be more challenging to get conversations because you're not there. Those are the four options I see. I think either one, you could sell the group program versus the customized to an organization program. It all depends on what the needs of the organization might be. They might be an organization that has one or two people and they want to enroll them in a a group with other organizations, or they might have a large enough group that you can do a a customized program for them. I think that could, that's a possibility in any of the four scenarios. Does that make sense? It does. So when you look at those four, again, local not-for-profit, national not-for-profit, local any industry or national any industry, you know, I'm a firm believer in gut feelings. What does your gut tell you? I don't like any of the models. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I like one and two because they're the closest niche type of options. So I have to say, I like one and two better because they're focused on one particular industry. The only issue for me is that I don't believe that the national, the not-for-profit is sustainable. Why is that? Because I find that not-for-profits a lot of times are very challenged in having a budget. And a lot of times their learning and development isn't a high priority either when they do have a budget. But you have, at the same time, you have clients who do have the budget and have made it a priority. Is is there something about them that you think makes them, you know, the exception to the rule? So I think I need to share a little bit more background. So when I first launched my set to lead program, I did have a few organizations that were part of the, of the cohort year one. After year one, maybe 20% of those companies decided to continue with the program. And year one, all the organizations were sponsored. I got a outside external sponsor to sponsor the training. It didn't come from their specific budget. 
year two and year three and year four, I, I launched my signature program in 2014. So two years later, only about 20% of those organizations decided to continue on and pay for the program through their own budget. And so how did that sponsor work? Who was that sponsor? It was a university. Okay. It was like a grant of some sort? Yeah, exactly. And are those grants, like, is it possible to get more or was that a one-time thing? It's possible to get more, but the margins weren't really high with these grant programs. So I had to sort of kind of take a hit on the margins, on the amount of money that was made through those programs. So in terms of a long-term strategy, I don't think that was the most effective. I mean, it was good. It was good in terms to get visibility, to get credibility, so folks would be would understand the curriculum and know how Amazing Appeal works. But from a long-term business strategy, I didn't think that was effective. But those grants are potentially available if you wanted more of them. Yeah, they're still available. They're still available, but they're not necessarily. You're not able to get retail costs using those monies. And especially for nonprofit, usually you've got a price a little lower than you would with a corporate customer. And are those grants for not-for-profits in particular? Yes. I mean, so you might just approach that as, as a business model and call the, the grant training, call that kind of your loss leader. You're not going to make a whole lot of money on that training. But then, yeah. like you said, a percentage of people continue. And then that's where yes. you make your money. Doesn't it work out that way? Yes, that's how it's, it's been working. It's nice because it's kind of like, in a way, you're getting paid for your marketing because the client has a risk-free way to try you. Nothing's coming out of pocket. Um, So they'll take a chance on your program. You're essentially marketing yourself in that first year, right? If 20% moved on in the first year, the first time you delivered it, I mean, I would hope you could steadily increase that rate as you refine the program and, and refine kind of the upsell to year two. So- you know, I think that's worth considering if we decide to stick with the not-for-profit model. And like what I'm hearing from you is, I mean, the reason why you like that option better than the others is because it's more clear. You have a track record. You've been training yeah. not-for-profits for, you know, three, four years now. Like To me, yeah. the riskiest thing to do at this stage, this not to say that you can't expand outside of not-for-profits eventually. We're, what we're doing now is we're just defining your next step. Right. We're not defining all the steps. So maybe Mm -hmm. in the future you expand this much wider than it currently is. But I think the riskiest thing you could do right now is go too far outside of what you've done and your comfort zone and your track record. And then you become a very risky option for a customer. I see. Right. Because if I'm a not for profit and you come in and you say, hey, I've been I've been training not for profits on these issues for four or five years. Here's my track record. Here are my customers. Here's some testimonials. I'm willing to have a conversation. If you come in as a, if you come into a a for-profit environment and all of your track record, at least as far as this program goes, is in the not-for-profit context. Well, you know how for-profit folks are arrogant, right? (laughs) They're going to say, well, that was a not-for-profit. They are. They are. I agree. You know, you're going to say your not-for-profit experience doesn't apply to us, right? And the not-for-profit folks may say the same thing because it's quite distinct, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that we should really narrow our focus now to either the local not-for-profit or the national not-for-profit options? I mean, I think it's worth exploring um, based off what you said. And as you said, it's not not all the steps, but it's one next step. I uh, um, I think it definitely could be one leg of the strategy. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and you know, once you've kind of really got a strong foothold in the not-for-profit market, then, you know, you'll have the cash and the credibility. And hopefully, once you build a larger team, the time to then go and explore new markets. But I think given that you've got like, you've got your foot in the door, you've kind of wedged it open with the not-for-profits, right? Now, I think the challenge is, can we just blow that door wide open and really get a stronghold? Exploit that, exploit that bucket for a minute. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to local versus national, I mean, you know better, right? You know your market, you know your network, you know who you have access to. How many opportunities are you seeing in the local market? I don't see too many locally. Because I believe that one of my clients is one of the bigger ones in, in this particular area. Um, and there are not too many that are co- in their space competing with them in terms of forward-thinking organizations, forward-thinking nonprofit organizations. So I would go national. Now, what do you mean by forward-thinking not-for-profit? I think forward-thinking meaning that they're really emulating a lot of the best practices that I've encountered and that I'm familiar with in corporate America Hmm. in terms of succession planning, in terms of believing that leaders need executive coaches, in terms of making sure that they have some budget allocated for professional development, and so much more. It's been very hard to find nonprofits in my local area that are forward-thinking like that. So is that a function of size or is it a function of leadership? Like what makes an organization forward thinking like that? I think it's both. I think it's they're on the docket. It's part of their goal to grow. And I think the board, the folks that are on the board are very forward thinking and they work in organization in corporate organizations that practice leadership that have forward thinking goals. And so because of those board members, they bring that over to the nonprofit sector. I think it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of the people that are in leadership and also because they have a goal to grow. Got it. And you can't grow if you don't focus on your people. Goal to grow in terms of their scope and their reach and their funding and all those things, right? Correct. Correct. Got it. Okay. Now, so I mean, I think ultimately where we're going to go with this is, you know, we want you to have more conversations with potential clients. That's obviously the next step. Conversations lead to sales, right? Uh, I see no reason, based on what you're saying, I see no reason to limit those conversations to your local market. Um, I think you likely will get more conversations locally, all things considered. But given that you're targeting a fairly narrow not-for-profit, narrow in the sense that they're going to be of a certain size, right? 10 to 40 people, right? Less than 10, probably too small to make it worthwhile. More than 40, and they may have something internally, maybe not. But it's a fairly narrow market demographically, but it's also a very narrow market, you know, from a qualitative behavioral perspective, right? You're looking for organizations that are quote unquote forward thinking in that they're doing or trying to do a lot of the things that are already table stakes in the corporate sector from an HR perspective. So I definitely see no reason to limit that to local. I think you'll be able to get conversations nationally. It certainly poses a few sales challenges, but nothing that you can't overcome. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So let's get down to brass tacks. Let's think about what this looks like. And the goal is to have more conversations with not-for-profit leaders, executive directors that fit your profile. And through that process, you will learn 
you know, you'll have a more dialed in view of who this is for. You'll have a more nuanced understanding of what their needs are and whether they're a good fit for the program. And once you've had a number of those conversations, one of two things will happen. Either you'll have more customers, which is kind of the point, right? Or, you know, you'll struggle and you'll learn that you need to pivot the program pivot the problem that it solves, pivot the way that it's delivered, or they need to pivot away from not-for-profits, <laughs> right? It's one of those, one of the above. Mm-hmm. Either way is fine, because in the end, all every conversation is a learning opportunity, right? So the more conversations you have, the more data you'll gather on kind of where to take things going forward. So the question is, how do you get those conversations? And I know you've done some stuff in this regard already. So can you explain that to us? What have you done so far to get these conversations? Well, you know, I've, try some of the traditional methods, such as referrals from internal networks, um, leveraging social media to, to inspire some conversation around leadership development and coaching. Those are really the two main things that I've really uh, worked on. You're forgetting the podcast. Well, I, I love that into social media. Is that not the social media bucket? I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit distinct, but tell me more. What are you doing with the podcast? What's the strategy there so far? Well, with the podcast, it really is a mentoring platform. So I've been leveraging it to identify those that are doing well in the leadership space who want to actually be a part of the mentoring platform to help others who are trying to get promoted or who are trying to transition into more professionally. and so. That's the way that I've been trying to conversate with those that um, who are highly motivated and want more professionally. That's been a strategy. So far, it's been, I've been getting a little buzz. Conversations are starting. People are starting to ask some questions. And it's just helping me understand what are those underlying themes that people are interested in? What topics do they want to learn more of? So in the end, I figure that that might help me with curriculum building and helping me to niche down. But my community is not necessarily a nonprofit community, so I'm not quite sure right now. I'm not necessarily honing in on what they need. I have to say, though, through implementing the set to lead cohorts in this development and coaching program, I have been able to figure out what their needs are and what topics they'd like to learn more of I'm not quite sure if I want to necessarily go down that road. So that's another reason why I wasn't really totally interested in going deeper into the nonprofit route because they're really interested in volunteer management, fundraising, how to grow their board, things of that nature. And I wasn't really quite sure um, in terms of upsell and growing the program. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to go down that direction. Because you want to stay focused on leadership. Correct. When you say they're very interested in volunteer management and fundraising and whatnot, who is they? The executive directors and the people that they work for. That's, those are high priority topics. And um, again, leadership is very important. But if you were going to uh, wave a carrot in front of them, that's what brings them in. Those are the top of topics that the board cares about. Not to say that they don't care about leadership and development, but I would say fundraising, volunteer management, growing the board are probably in the top three. 
Okay. So I've got a couple of thoughts with regards to the podcast. Let's get back to some of the other business development strategies in a minute. But with the podcast in particular, I've got two ideas. I think there's okay. two ways you can go forward with this. One is you focus on interviewing executive directors from not-for-profits, okay? Because that's your target audience. That's who you want to sell to. So I really think you should focus from a sales perspective on the buyer. I think what you're doing right now is great, like you said, from a curriculum perspective and from understanding needs and issues and all that is really good. But from a sales perspective, I want you talking to the buyer, to the decision maker, because if you can't get them into a conversation, then we're going to have, have a hard time selling, right? Mm-hmm. So so I would focus on executive directors at not-for-profits or anybody that's in charge of HR. But from what you're saying in your target buyer's organization, it's primarily the executive directors. I would focus on him or her. And then I think you can go one of two ways. You can either focus in on HR slash leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can say, hey, this is a podcast where we interview executive directors at not-for-profits and we talk about leadership and human resources. And we're trying to gather some of the best practices around what you're doing to nurture future leaders at your not-for-profit and what some of the challenges are. And we want to profile you because we think your not-for-profit has you know, a certain reputation or whatever it may be. And the more of these you do, the easier it'll be to get conversations because as people see that their peers are participating in this conversation, they'll want to do it, right? As Seth Godin says, people like us do things like this. So <laughs> once there's a, a nice critical mass of them, it'll be much easier to get those conversations. And that's that's what I'm seeing now on forecast is now that I've interviewed a number of big names in this space, it's so much easier to get a conversation because there's all this social proof, right? Mm-hmm. That's one way to do it. If you think it's going to be hard to get conversations around leadership in HR, then you could do a more general podcast around, you know, just kind of the top issues facing EDs at not-for-profits of a particular size, right? And you open it up and you, you open it up to all possibilities, right? And you, you take a more general approach. The focus is executive directors at not-for-profits of a particular size, but the conversation's more open. And through that, you're trying to gauge essentially you know, where does my problem that I solve fit on their agenda? Where is it on their radar? And maybe for a lot of them, it won't be on their radar. And that's fine. You built a relationship. If it comes up again, they'll reach out to you. But maybe some of them, I mean, chances are for some of them, it will fall on their radar because, well, you know that, you know, it's an issue. You know, it's something that organizations are struggling with because you have clients, right? So some of them will have this problem. And for those organizations, you can, you know, your follow up can be after the interview, after you're done recording, you're off the record, you can say, hey, you know, you mentioned this is a problem. This is actually something that we specialize in solving. Can we schedule a follow up to talk about how we might be able to help you? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think I would prefer to focus in on leadership for not for profits as a topic, because I think if you, if you can frame it that way, you're more likely to get into a conversation that will lead to the discovery or the uncovering of problems that you solve. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're yeah. hitting a wall with that, then maybe you can broaden it. I think a lot of people in my experience and the experience of many that I've talked to, a lot of people, when you ask them to do an interview, if it all looks very credible, right? And you're a professional and you know what you're doing, you've got a network, they're going to say yes, because everyone likes talking about themselves ultimately, Yeah. right? And, and most people, you know, I'm assuming most people in your audience don't get asked to be interviewed very often. No, no, they don't. And as a matter of fact, I just shared this uh, new podcast with one of my clients who happens to be an ED and they're really excited. They're really excited about it so much so that they insisted that I make sure that their um, employees were aware of the podcast so the employees could listen. No, oh, that's that's amazing. And your podcast is already branded around Set to Lead, right? Correct. It's already branded. 
And I just finished my most recent set to lead cohort last week. And so I had a meeting with the ED afterwards so we can talk about next steps. And um, I introduced the podcast and she was really excited. She listened to it. We listened to a little bit of it together, actually. And she really wants to make sure that her participants, her employees, get to listen to the upcoming episodes around leadership. So that was really a positive statement. So I think that's great. So here's what I would do going forward as kind of your next step. Again, the goal is conversations. The podcast has already proven itself, even in this early stage, that it's getting you conversations. And I think we've got a good hunch that'll get you more conversations with the right people. I would focus in on EDs at not-for-profits um, framed around leadership as a conversation. And then I would just build build a hit list, build a hit list of 100 EDs at not-for-profits across the country. Using your own network, and the referrals from within your network, how many people do you think you could build a list of? For for the next 12 months? Well, in total, like how many people from your immediate network and let's say second degree connections could you identify that would be good targets for a podcast interview? From my own private network, I don't think I should get 100. But maybe, you know, you don't know. I haven't really analyzed. My network has grown in the past few months. So maybe there's more... EDs in that in that pile that I'm aware of. Yeah, no, um, I, don't, I don't expect the hundred to come from your network. So I'm, I'm trying to gauge oh, like how many do you think you could get from your network out of the hundred? Maybe 40. Which is amazing, right? Because the goal here is to get as many of those easy, low hanging fruit conversations, get those first, right? That's how you get the ball rolling, right? So get the, you know, do the first 10, the easiest first 10, then the next 10, then the next 10. Get to 30 or 40 from your existing network or referrals from your network. And now you have like a bona fide podcast with a track record and a lot of content that you can then take and you can do some cold outreach to new prospects, right? And then what you do is to close the next 60, what you do is have a, you know, hire a virtual assistant, get them to develop a database of not-for-profit leaders that fit your criteria and, you know, use LinkedIn Sales Navigator to target it by organization size and, and all the other fancy ways that you can filter people, right? And, uh, you know, any virtual assistant that has experience with Sales Nav will know exactly what to do, right? Have them develop mm -hmm. a profile, build a list of another 100, 200. I mean, heck, go for 500. It's not that hard, especially when you're working at a national level, right? Build right, a list. If you say so, Ahmad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, again, you know your market, right? But at a national level, like I would imagine there's a lot of organizations out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe 500 is too much. I mean, I'm sure it's more than 100. That's mm -hmm. something that, you know, that's what a little bit of research will help you discover, right? That LinkedIn research will, I think that'll go a long way in, in helping you identify how big the market is and how many of them you can access. And then, and then you develop an outreach process on LinkedIn, right? You start engaging with these folks, sending them connection requests, getting into conversations with them. But now you have an amazing opener, right? So instead of saying, hey, can we talk to see if you have a problem that I solve? Now you say, hey, I love the work you're doing. Your organization's really inspiring. I actually interview not-for-profit leaders, EDs at not-for-profits, and talk about leadership. I'd love your perspective. Here are some episodes I've done in the past from not-for-profits that are just like you. Would you be interested? I mean, that's kind right. of hard to say no to. Tell me if especially, you disagree. Yeah, of course, especially if you're into social justice and into different social projects. You want to, it's a way for them to spread the news of the good work that they're doing. Yeah. And, and I love this strategy because 
like LinkedIn is a powerful tool, right? But the hardest part about LinkedIn is not getting the connections, it's getting the conversation. It's going from, okay, we're connected on LinkedIn now, I see you as a professional who is somebody that maybe I wanna be connected with, but getting them from there to having a phone conversation, having a real interaction, that's the hardest part. And you've got this amazing offer that you can use that I think marries the both of LinkedIn in terms of your access to customers and an offer that gets them on the phone and gets them to open up. And the beauty of interviews, which I'm sure you've discovered by now, is it's a safe space. They don't feel like they're being sold to. And with the right questions, you can really get them to open up and really put their issues out on the table so you can see everything and decide you know, whether it's worth pursuing. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And I enjoy that piece. I enjoy speaking with people, interviewing them, probing them on what they're doing well, where they want to go, the next level, et cetera, et cetera. So that part to me is very fun. And I don't think it's something that everybody should do. I think it's a powerful strategy, but yeah, you have to have a certain type of personality to pull this off. And it sounds like you have it. And the fact that you enjoy it is is a big plus. So I think like this to me is a, for you in particular, is a powerful strategy I feel like anything else, if you if you do anything else, kind of like the old school business development way, my worry is somebody like you might just get frustrated and hit a wall and then kind of, you know, get disheartened. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I don't like the traditional sales me- methodologies. And, you know, I don't, they say, you know, when you sell, it needs to be a relationship. And I have to say, I like that piece about interviewing people because it's very easy for me to speak to people one-on-one. It's very easy for me to speak to people about the issues and probe them and have a conversation. So that's why I think it's fun because that part is very natural for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, then, and, and then let the rest come organically if it was meant to be. And you don't need everybody to buy, right? Even if 5 or 10% of these folks buy, I mean, that's going to work out pretty well for you. And some of them might come back to you later, right? But you're not trying mm-hmm. to sell all of them. That's not the goal. No. And the goal is to help. The goal is to help someone get to the next level. The goal is to change someone's mindset and perspective if that's what they need to get the more that they're looking for in life. So that's, that's really the goal. So yeah. if I can do that, I'm happy. And, and if I'm able to make money in the process, that's great too. But the, the number one priority is getting people to the next level. Yeah. And I think with that kind of attitude, you're, you're going to go far. Uh, we're coming up on time here, Marianne. What do you think? Like, is that a reasonable way forward? I think it is. I think it's, like I said before, I think it's one leg that can be explored. And, and basically what you're saying is exhaust this, work with this a little bit more, delve a little bit deeper and see if it could be one of the many vehicles that I use in my business model. Yeah. And you don't need to do a hundred podcast interviews. I think you should shoot for a hundred, right? But if you do, you know, I would say 20, 25, and you know what, it's just not working, you know, not working, you have to define success, right? So for me, the definition of success for this particular tactic is it's creating sales conversations, right? That you're identifying issues, needs, problems that you solve through the podcast interview, and you're getting follow-up conversations about those problems. Beyond that, it's, you know, there may be other issues from a sales perspective that you need to solve, right? But if the podcast generates those sales conversations, it's done its job. If it's not doing that after, you know, 20, 30 interviews, I mean, there's no like hard and fast rule here, right? So it's it's very subjective. But if after a good critical mass of interviews, you're not getting those conversations, definitely go back to the drawing board. But if it seems to be working, I would keep doing it. 
I agree. I think it's a valid and um, a very reasonable next step. Thank you. You're welcome. Any any other questions you want to throw out there that we can tackle quickly? Nothing that can be tackled quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think you know, a follow-up conversation might be really valuable. Once you've gone out and done some of this work, uh, why don't you come back and let's talk about what happened? Sounds good. Sounds good, Ahmad. I like that idea. All right, Marianne, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com and you can spell out five or use the number, either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening.